Friends, Psalm 90 is often read at funerals as it deals with our mortality. Scholars place it in the category of a community lament, people seeking God's intervention in times of national crisis. Laments, whether individual, like Psalm 6, which Dale preached on last week, or corporate in nature, like Psalm 137, which Emily preached on in early October, are cries for help, offered with a wide variety of emotions, ranging from discouragement and despair to bitterness and anger. What comes into particular focus in this psalm of lament is God's eternal nature, and by contrast, our sinful mortality. Peggy Lee's soulful version of the song, Is That All There Is, comes to mind for me when I hear this song. The chorus asks plaintively, Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. This psalmist is coming to terms with the depressing reality of our sinfulness and our mortality and asking for God's compassionate intervention. Because the nature of the central section of this text is very somber, I thought we needed a brief moment of levity as we begin. Now, how many of you remember the Hokey Pokey? It's a joy-filled circle dance that I first learned in kindergarten. And as the song goes, you put various parts of your body into the circle. You shake it all about. You do the hokey pokey. I still don't even really know what that means, except you kind of whatever. And you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. (laughs) Some years ago, back on April 11, 1996, Larry LaPreeze, the man who wrote the hokey pokey, died in his sleep at age 93. The most traumatic part for his family was getting him into the coffin. They put his right foot in, and then the trouble started. (laughs) Three men from a local church were asked, when you're in your casket and your friends and family are viewing your body and expressing their grief, what would you like them to say? And Artie said, well, I'd like them to say, I was a wonderful husband and father and a fine spiritual leader. Eugene commented, I'd like them to say, I was a wonderful teacher and a servant of God who made a real difference in people's lives. And finally, Don commented, I'd like them to say, look, he's moving. (laughs) Okay, on to our text. Psalm 90 is read for us today by Sally Jacobs. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn us back to dust and say, turn back, you mortals. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past, or like a watch in the night. You sweep them away, they are like a dream like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are consumed by your anger. By your wrath we are overwhelmed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. 
for all our days pass away under your wrath. Our years come to an end like a sigh. The days of our life are 70 years, or perhaps 80 if we are strong. Even then, their span is only toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? Your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. So teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart. Turn, O Lord, how long? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad as many days as you have afflicted us and as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be manifest to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and prosper for us the work of our hands. Oh, prosper the work of our hands. Psalm 90 has three basic sections. Verses 1 and 2 express confidence in our Creator. God is addressed as Lord, emphasizing God's majesty and authority as master, owner, and ruler of all things. Verse 2 confesses that even before creating the earth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And yet this great transcendent God is also described by the psalmist as you have been our dwelling place, that is our home or our refuge in all generations. Like the prodigal in Jesus' parable, to go home is to return to the waiting father. So our transcendent God, our great and distant God beyond description is also our near accessible and loving Lord. God who created us is our shelter, our refuge, our true home. So at the beginning of this prayer, God's imminence, God's nearness, accessibility, and transcendence, his greatness, his otherness, both come into view. Now the Psalm's lengthy midsection, verses 3 to 12, focuses on our sinfulness and our frailty as human beings, both of which are in direct contrast with our Creator. Well, for our sovereign eternal ruler, a thousand years are like yesterday, or even a watch in the night, people return to the dust from which they were made. Our years, even if we are granted as many as 70 or 80, are filled with toil and trouble, and they pass quickly like a sigh. In response to our sinfulness, the psalmist mentions God's anger and wrath a total of five times. The Bible views sin as an aggressive, active power, a deadly spiritual virus, much like COVID-19. However, unlike COVID-19, sin is something with which all people have already been infected. Verses 7 and 8 read, We are consumed by your anger. By your wrath, we are overwhelmed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your countenance. Many people struggle with his teaching about God's anger and wrath and find it incompatible with what the Bible teaches about God's love. 
I think 16th century German reformer Martin Luther is of help here. He spoke of God's wrath as God's strange work necessitated by the sinful resistance of people, whereas God's proper work is redeeming us in and through Christ Jesus. Thus, the Old Testament teaching about God's wrath finds its its logical expression in the statement of the psalmist. This is Psalm 30, verse 5. God's wrath is for a moment. God's steadfast love for a lifetime. The psalmist concludes this grim section with a brief question, answer, and request. Here's the question. Who considers the power of your anger? That's the question. Here's the answer. Your wrath is as great as the fear, or I'd say reverence, that is due you. And finally, here's the request. So teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart. What is this request really asking? That we understand and take to heart how brief and sin-filled our lives are, and that we gain wisdom by reverencing and drawing near to our Creator, which is intended to be the central purpose of our lives. The final section of the psalm, verses 13 to 17, are the most hopeful section. Here's when the community's cry for help, though, is actually made. Verse 13 asks God to repent. That is to change God's mind, to cease from punishing, and instead display God's compassion. Verse 14 asks, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, so we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Steadfast love is the New Revised Standard Version translation of the single Hebrew word chesed. It appears in the book of Psalms a total, an amazing total of 125 times. It refers to the covenant love or loyalty needed to fulfill our reciprocal covenant obligations to God. However, from God's side, chesed goes far beyond reciprocity to means God's faithful, enduring, and undeserved love. For example, noted German Old Testament scholar Arthur Weiser in his commentary on the Psalms regularly translates the Hebrew word chesed, steadfast love, with the word grace. Evidence of the undeserved nature of God's chesed is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 34. After, at Mount Sinai, Israel disobeys the third commandment and shatters the covenant relationship by constructing and worshiping the golden calf. After Moses' passionate intercession on behalf of the sinful Israelites, God surprisingly forgives the people and renews the covenant with them. And then God proclaims that grace is at the very heart of who God is. Here's that passage. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that is, hesed and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, chesed again, for the thousandth generation. The thousandth generation. A similar example is found in the prophet Hosea. He's ordered to act out God's steadfast love for the unfaithful Hebrew people by marrying a prostitute. And after she proves unfaithful, welcoming her back as his wife. In the same way, God promises to welcome back the unfaithful Hebrews when God proclaims, I will take you for my wife in steadfast love and in mercy. The psalmist says that experiencing God's steadfast love, 
that the people will rejoice and be glad all their days. Verses 16 and 17 are asking, let your work, your saving work be manifest in your glorious power and let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. So this cries that God would reveal God's grace, God's undeserved steadfast love to the people, transforming their lives from toil and trouble to rejoicing and gladness. Friends, exhibiting God's undeserved grace and steadfast love is what Jesus' humble incarnation, sinless life, compassionate ministry, vicarious death, and glorious resurrection are all about. God does not simply overlook our sin, but as Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, sends Christ to embrace the cross for us, thus saving us from the wrath of God. Jesus absorbs God's wrath for us and for all who trust him. And this is not something we have earned or achieved. According to the Apostle Paul, again in Romans, God's saving work in Christ and forgiving our sin means that for those who respond to God's steadfast love and grace by trusting in Christ, that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Our hoped-for response to God's grace in our worship and acts of service is expressed in verse 17 when the psalmist twice asks God to prosper the work of our hands. That is, give our work meaning and lasting significance. As Paul put it at the end of his 15th chapter of his first letter to the church at Corinth, therefore, my beloved, in light of God's demonstration of love for us in Christ and in light of his resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Completely missing from Psalm 90 is any clear expression of the hope of resurrection to new life. That belief was not clearly taught in Scripture till nearer the end of the Old Testament period. The hope and promise of resurrection to life everlasting is central in Jesus' teaching as the ultimate expression of God's undeserved steadfast love and grace. Now, in our Reformed tradition, the word and sacraments are sometimes called means of grace. So we believe that as we approach the sacrament of the Lord's Supper with faith, which we celebrate this morning, it conveys the grace of God in Christ and points to our hope of receiving the gift of life everlasting. So today, as we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, it reminds us that in the past, as an act of pure grace, an act of chesed, Christ died for our sins, defeated sin and death, and was raised to new life. And that in future, Christ will return to consummate God's reign as king, and bestow on us the gift of life everlasting, and that in the present moment, by God's grace, we can commune with our risen Savior, who is spiritually present in this sacrament. Thanks be to God for God's steadfast love in and through Jesus Christ. Amen.